0: Weighed down by depression.-hmm. Yes. Yes. So we put ourselves in this first heaven, I guess you could say, on earth, where we're, we're being weighed down by the spiritual warfare. And then sometimes we even rise into that spiritual warfare but we start fight fighting em- enemies that aren't ours <laughs> to fight instead of having authority over those realms we start fighting and hitting and like just with all our might getting exhausted and we might even get hit a couple times but what god is calling us to is to be above even the angels and demons fighting, even the spiritual warfare, to be above that, seated on his throne, in his lap. Our daddy has a big lap. And so we can just crawl into his lap, and I almost picture it like the Lord saying, hey, look, look down there, see what's going on. And then that's where we can pray with power and authority Because we have the right perspective of being intimate with the Lord and just dwelling with Him, just being with Him. And then from that place, instead of out of exhaustion or out of depression, we can actually praise and we can dance with the Lord. We can sing with the Lord. We can be in His presence and he can help us to see from a clear perspective where we see the whole picture instead of being in the midst of it all. And so an example of this actually, a few days ago, I, I was just stressing about you know normal life things and actually even just financial things with some things coming up in our lives. And so I... I was stressing all day, and then when I went to bed, I felt this invitation of the Lord calling me to a place of rest with him. And so I just said, Lord, I'm just stressed about this. I just don't know what to do. And I felt like he was pulling me into his arms and just reassuring me, saying, I'm your provider. I'm your God. I'm the one who loves you. He also told me um, there's just some decisions and stuff that we have in our future. And he said, my will isn't a chain. (laughs) It's not a leash to keep you so bound in the bondage that you think that you're freeing yourself from. It's so open with him. It's so his... His lap is big. His throne is big. It's when we're in communion with him, he doesn't have us on this little leash that he's just whipping us every time we make a mistake. And so that just brought a lot of freedom to me and just realizing that he was bringing me into that place. In five minutes of that moment, like relieved all of my stress about that situation. And so I think sometimes we don't realize how many situations that we are under. And we just let it pass through, we let it go through. Um, Something that I recently heard is that, you know when you have little kids who want to be held by their parents, they raise their hands and say, up, up mommy, up daddy. And so when we have this posture, like, because you might say, well, how do I get to the heavenly places? Up, Daddy. (laughs) Lift me up, Lord. I want to be in your arms. And so I'm actually, I haven't really done this a whole lot. And I know Steve started to press into this, but this was actually kind of the heart of what I was feeling this morning. So I'm going to invite you to take a moment with me to think about some of those different things and to bring your perspective, to bring yourself, or to have the Lord bring you to that place of that higher dwelling place with Him. And so if you'll just close your eyes, and if you don't want to do this, then Think about lunch or something. I guess I don't know, <laughs> but like this is just an invitation for you to just be brought to that place, that heavenly place, and it's a place we can live from. It's not just a back and forth, back and forth. Any time that you feel yourself descending, you can just say, "Up, Daddy." And He'll just lift you up. So I would just ask the Lord, or if you have something already come to mind, just one thing, because I'm sure a lot of us could think of several different things. But just to learn how to walk in this, just ask the Lord for one thing that has been giving you anxiety, That's been stressing you out. Maybe it's financial, maybe relational, just anything that you have just before you that you have felt like you've been under. Now, if you want to ask God, God, where are you in this? God what what are you saying to me in this Now just picture yourself and if you need to physically raise your arms um, or even just in your mind but just picture yourself being lifted up through that situation above the spiritual warfare of that situation and into his arms on the throne room. Father God, I just thank you. I just thank you for loving us as your dear children. I just thank you for providing. I thank you for healing. I thank you for your righteousness, for your goodness, for who you are. I thank you for holding us close that there's a power in your love, in your presence, that there's a power in the peace that transcends all. Lord, I thank you that this tough situation, this thing we're going through, isn't big to you it's right it's down there but yet you're in the midst with us you're in the midst of the the pain and sorrow and the rejoicing and joy that we can let our hearts heal our souls heal while also rising above. Thank you, Jesus. In Jesus' name. So, I'm going to call my wonderful husband up, but I did want to say a couple things. I mean, you can come up. Like, (laughs) he doesn't know that I was going to say anything. But I may be biased, but I think I'm so thankful for you. (laughs) Peter is definitely a steward of the word. And he was prophesied that when he was young, but he has taken that and developed that and come out of that and is just like blossoming (laughs) and I just there's so much anointing on what he carries and on the humility and honor that he carries with it like I feel so privileged to be able to be married to such a wonderful husband, and wonderful in so many ways, but, like, what you are going to be able to partake of is something that I get the privilege of partaking of every day, and I just am so blessed to be able to have you guys see a little insight into just how incredible he is, which you guys know that already, but I just... I'm so blessed with just how much he's been growing and how much the Holy Spirit has been just revealing things to him. And so I'm just so thankful for this opportunity to hear you share.
1: Well, shucks. <laughs> oh, boy. I'll try to live up to that, I guess. No, thank you, Nate. Uh, it's a good word. I feel like we could almost go home after what she said today, but um, I do have something for us today. If Ben, if we could get the first slide up there. <laughs> it's up. Wonderful. All right. So my message today, something I've entitled, To Dwell in Unity, um, Reexamining Acts 6 and 7. And before we get to Acts 6 and 7, I just want to think about that word "dwell" for a second, and i, I don't have a slide for this. Maybe I should have, um, but the word "dwell" in the Bible is the word uh, "yashab," uh, and it, it occurs in the Bible over a thousand times. So you know, it's pretty—it's uh, a pretty important word. Um, uh, and its its meaning is—it's pretty simple. It's what you might think it would be. It means uh, to remain. It means to abide. It means to inhabit. But it also means interesting things, I think. It means to sit. Um, You imagine someone, like I'm dwelling in this chair right now. I'm sitting, I'm relaxed, I'm at home here. Um, It also means to be enthroned. There's a sort of a kingly sort of uh, meaning sometimes this word dwell. Uh, And perhaps even most interestingly, it's um, very much wrapped up in the idea of marriage, of something being very close-knit. And you can kind of get that picture when a man and a woman come together in marriage, they go and they live somewhere, they inhabit some space, Um, they make their home, they settle down somewhere, they plant roots, they make something meaningful and deep um, in the, the way they live, right? Um, so when we talk about the word dwell today, when we're talk about, talking about this idea of inhabiting space and existing somewhere, um, this isn't, in the Bible, it's not, uh, it's not a rental. <laughs> it's not somewhere that you exist um, for a short amount of time. It's, it's a very permanent idea. It's as close as a man is to his wife and as a wife is to his, her husband. Um, it's it's um, closer than anything else, I think. All right. Um, so before we get to Acts, um, um, I sort of debated on whether to whether to include this or not, but it's something that I I can't get out of my mind when I'm thinking about Acts six and seven. So if Ben, you could turn to the next slide. Um, in the beginning, we're going to turn to to Genesis. Um, this is just this is a freebie. This is a a fun Bible uh, thing that I think is is something I hadn't seen before. But once I saw it, it's 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 hard to unsee. Um, did you know that the, uh, the days in which the world was created um, have a meaning? They're not just random. There wasn't, you know, just randomly, all right, we're going to throw trees out this day. Or we're going to throw animals out this day. Um, it's just, you know, whatever's coming through the wire. You know, the angels were, were a little late on the animals, so we're going to do trees first, that kind of thing. No, it, there's a purpose to it. Um, and, some, and scholars have noted this before, that there's a, this idea Uh, there's a there's a poetry to it Um, you see that the first three uh, days are what we would call dwellings they're places Um, so we have the the heavens we have the day we have the night the space um, up there above us and then we have down here we have the land the sea the air the earth the space that we live in here and then in the third day um, oftentimes I remember it being said, oh, this is when the vegetation is made, but it's really, the picture is, um, it's, it's fruited trees, it's, it's plants for seeding, it's, it's the gardens, <laughs> right? Um, and then the next three days we have, oh, look at that, the things that are going to inhabit those spaces. Um, you have the sun and the moon that will exist where the day and the night go. You have the living creatures that will go where the land, the sea, the air is. And then last you have, man who is going to live in that garden space, as we see in the Eden story, right after we read this part in Genesis 1 or 2 or wherever it is. Um, and you can kind of see, I've, I've, I've given us some little brackets, those things connect in a nice little poetic way. First goes to the fourth, the second goes to the fifth, um, and the third goes to the sixth. Um, but something uh, I noticed, um, and maybe you noticed too, is that th- there's a seventh day, right? We all know the seventh day, and it's sort of an outlier, um, um, it's the day we know that, that he says that God rests, but it also says he sanctifies his work and he sort of um, relaxes in it. And I think sometimes we kind of picture that as, as God then recedes back into heaven. He came here, he made the earth, and he, and he leaves, right? Um, but the Bible, it, it doesn't actually say that. It doesn't say that he goes somewhere else. It just says that he rests in his work. Um, so if you go to the next slide, Ben, the way I see it is that The pattern here has established something um, that we're supposed to extend that seventh day, in which all the first six days are the dwelling place, and then the seventh day is the ultimate dweller. God himself plants himself, rests, is at home in the thing that he's created and said it is good. (laughs) Um, He and his creation are inseparable from one another, I think, in this picture. And I think it sort of paints a nice little, from the very first page, an idea of what our purpose is. Our purpose to know and express the very nature of the Father. We are a part of this creation, and He is a part of what we're doing. Um, but of course, if we read the Eden story, we know there's a, there comes a little bit of a problem, right? Um, there comes something what we call a sin problem. Uh, it comes in the form of a snake in the story, and it convinces us, it convinces humanity, um, that we are anything but at the heart of God's desire. It, 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 it gives that lie. Oh, maybe God doesn't have your best interests at heart, right? You remember the snake says that to Eve? Oh, are you sure, God, that's what God meant? Um, it sows those seeds of doubt and distrust. And humanity then lose tra- loses track of its identity and its purpose, and we call that the fall of man. Next slide, Ben. All right. But we get a wonderful promise at the end of the Eden story. Um, We get this promise that even though the snake will strike humanity, that 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 snake will also have his head crushed, right? We Remember that, that the serpent's head gets crushed, but the heel gets gets bitten. (laughs) Um, And we know this, of course, as a revelation of the Christ to come, right? Christ is the one who steps on the head of the devil. We all know that. Um, but I think in a more broad way, this is a picture and a promise um, that there will certainly be evil. There will be poison stirred into our world. Um, the snake strikes more than once, I think, in, a, in, in the history of the world, right? It's, it's sort of a, a repeated pattern of poison and sin and evil. Um, but despite that, God's purpose will always be maintained. He will never leave us. He will still be dwelling in this world. Um, he will always lift up his representatives, people who know him, whose spirit leads and guides and stops evil and creates these little spaces, what I like to think is pockets of peace. And his purpose and presence can still reign as it did in the Eden at the beginning. And we see that throughout all the stories of the Bible, I think, is of what I like to think of as little pockets of peace. All those characters that we know as the greats, you know, Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, those are the little pockets where he raises up someone to stomp on the snake's head. And they're, of course, pointing to Christ. And it is my belief, though, that this evil, this poison, uh, the way I see it in the Bible, is most often depicted um, by the way people treat one another, right? It's the Cain and Abel story. It's Jacob and Esau. It's Joseph and his brothers. It's why God sends the flood, and it's why there's a captivity in Babylon. It's violence and abuse. The weak are trampled while the strong dominate and destroy. It's the very opposite of our intended nature to live in peace and to dwell in our purpose of knowing our Heavenly Father. And I think it's the very thing that the psalmist was thinking about in Psalms 133 when he said, Behold, how good and how pleasant it is for brothers, for people, for people to dwell together in unity. All right, next slide. So this leads me to Acts 6 and 7, which, if you're following at home, is the martyrdom of Stephen. Maybe maybe you didn't expect that. (laughs) Um, Maybe, oh, somber mood all of a sudden. Um, Don't worry, it's going to be good. It's going to be good. Um, so I'm guessing that everyone here knows at least one thing about the character of Stephen in the Bible. Um, what is that one thing? I remember growing up that whenever Stephen was mentioned, or if parts of his story story was read, his name just sort of invokes this idea, um, that first of all, this guy, you know, if you look him up, the things that will first come up is, he's the first deacon, first martyr. That's, those are his titles, um. Uh, and two, I think the thing I, I often came away with uh, was that I was supposed to reflect uh, on my own convictions as to whether I was willing to be martyred. Um, more specifically, if I, was, if I was right then, after I heard that story, willing to go uh, be gruesomely, uh, gruesomely murdered in some painful way, such as being stoned. Um, you see a picture like this, and you're supposed to feel like, oh, I, I, I have to be that guy, right? Sitting there with his hands raised while some guy... There's a rock coming down. Yeah. <laughs> it's hefty stuff for a Sunday morning when you're just a kid, right? Uh, and to be honest, <laughs> as a young boy, though, uh, I probably walked away uh, probably a lot more curious about just the limits of my own pain tolerance, right? I, I would probably imagine, oh, how, how manly, how spiritual would that be um, to be in those circumstances? I bet I could take a stoning. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, and if not, then perhaps maybe you just walk away with a, a nice healthy dose of, of guilt and maybe a little bit of shame for not, for not being that spiritual. Not, I'm not, maybe you don't feel quite as Christian as that guy up there today, uh, and maybe you should feel real guilty and shameful about that. Um, and, maybe, and and then after that, that's just about all we know about Stephen, right? That's, we kind of walk away and go, well, that's, that's martyrs for you. That's how you're supposed to feel when you hear a story like that. Um, however... As I was re-experiencing this story a few months ago, I found myself seeing, I think, what is a new side to this story. Uh, And I think it illuminates part of what I think is an inherent purpose for its telling. Uh, So next slide, Ben. So we'll we'll go through it together. We'll start uh, with verse 1. And it says, Now in those days, when the number of the disciples was multiplying, there arose a complaint against the Hebrews by the Hellenists because their widows were neglected in the daily distribution. All right. So first off, we see that the influence of the early church, it's it's quickly growing. uh, And soon, it's the larger scale problems of their city. They're all in Jerusalem, right? Uh, These problems are coming before them, and they need to address them. They need to minister them. They need to be the church, right? Uh, and we can note here that the problem is that some of the weakest and most unheard groups are being mistreated in some way. They're not being taken care of properly. Uh, so it's clear why it comes to the attention of the church. And if you read at the end of Acts 2, which is just a few chapters before this, um, you'll see that the first thing that the church does in the Bible, I mean, this is Acts 2, this is the very beginning of the church. It's the first thing this, 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 uh, this church does um, is what I call... Uh, what I would say is they just establish a way of life. They don't, straight go, they don't, don't go straight into martyrdom like sometimes I think is in our head where, um, you know, Jesus goes and immediately the Romans just started killing all the Christians. Um, that's not quite what the Bible shows us, I think, in Acts. Uh, the first thing they do is they just establish a way of life in the city, um, what I would call a kingdom way of life. Uh, and it's a simple picture, really, if you go to the end of Acts 2. It says that they held all things in common— they provided every need for those who had one, and they fellowshiped and worshipped together often and warmly. <laughs> um, in other words, they just, they lived life, they knew their God, and they loved each other well because of it. Uh, so when they hear this widow's cry in Acts 6, um, their intuition is, of course, to just open up their arms, bring the needy into the fold, and to see their kingdom lived out here on earth right in their hometown. Um, they're starting where they're at, right? They want to see that the kingdom is represented and mirrored in just the way we live. So there's two terms I just want to investigate here at the beginning of verse 6, or verse 1. Uh, and the first is, of course, uh, this idea of the daily distribution. Um, so there are a number of precedents uh, laid out in the Bible that speak um, to the Israelites and specifically to the, Lev- the Levites, or what we might call the spiritual leader's duty to take care of Of the poor. Um, In several verses, such as uh, in Leviticus 19, Deuteronomy 24, and Exodus 23, um, it lays out what are essentially rudimentary taxation programs for the needy and the sick. Uh, And even it says for foreigners, strangers passing through the city are liable to take uh, a part of this taxation for the poor, which is actually quite cool when you think about it. Um, and in Deuteronomy 6.12, it lays out even, an even more specific program in which every third year there was a tithe taken uh, up for the poor. Uh, and we see in the writings of uh, one of the, a historian that was actually living just after Jesus' time, uh, his name is Josephus, you don't need to know that. Um, he mentions that in, the pra- in practice at least, um, these tithes would be taken up by the priesthood and then distributed through the city. Um, so when we're talking about the distribution, um, what we're really talking about is the responsibility of the priesthood, the people who are in charge of this uh, this wealth, the, to distribute it well. And somebody, um, these Hellenists, these widows of the Hellenists, aren't getting their share. Um, the second term, of course, is then Hellenists. Who are the Hellenists? Why do we care? Um, it's it's one of those terms, it's a Bible term, right? We kind of see the the, the Bible name terms, and we go, ah, skip. Uh, the Ancient peoples, they're all the same, right? Um, But I I think when we mention names in the Bible, it's important to know who they are a little bit. Um, So the Hellenists, they're the ones who are launching this complaint, right, against the Hebrew peoples, it says, specifically. So the Hellenists were were a cultural subgroup. They're living in Jerusalem. They're living among the Jewish people. Um, they specifically, they are Jews, they're Jewish people, but who have taken up the cultural practices, the mannerisms and the dress, the style, and, and probably most importantly, the language of Greek people. Um, and if you just think about that for a moment, think about what you know about Greek people, what you know about Jewish people, they are very different uh, cultural groups. Uh, and this may seem like kind of a mundane detail, um, but for me, it paints kind of a more vivid a more honest depiction of the Jerusalem that Jesus and his disciple lives in. Um, I know growing up maybe I oftentimes had, okay, you mentioned Jerusalem, and you kind of just get this idea of like this island of universal Jewishness just sort of floating out in the desert somewhere. Um, But the Jerusalem I think we see depicted here uh, is this multicultural hub with international connectivity um, to this wider ancient world. There's people from all over the world coming through this city. Um, And when you think about it, uh, it kind of makes a lot of sense. People never stay in one place. They migrate, they explore, they take opportunities where they're available. And diseases, wars, weather even, trade deals, all those kind of things that make up life um, cause people to cross-pollinate culturally all over the world. And yet, despite where people travel and where they settle down to, they always remember who they are, right? They remember where they came from. Even if a few generations pass, they know that they're Jewish and they sometimes return to their ancestral homeland. Um, But more often than not, they bring that foreign culture back with them. They've lived in Greece for a while, you bring Greece back with you. Um, It's a story really as old as time then. Um, We get this idea that cultural minorities, they're mistrusted, they lack power, and they're given the short end of the stick as we've seen here. Um, We see this as the case with the Hellenists, but it's the desire of the kingdom then. Uh, to amend and serve these people. Next slide, then. So verses 2 through 6. Um, so then the twelve disciples summoned the multitude of all the disciples and said, It's not desirable that we, the twelve, should leave the word of God and go serve tables. Therefore, brothers, um, seek out among yourselves seven men of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom, who we may appoint over this business. But we will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And the saying pleased the whole multitude, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith in the Holy Spirit, and Philip, Procurus, Nicanor, Timon, uh, Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte from Antioch, whom they set before the apostles, and when they had prayed, they laid hands on them. Um, so this is where we often get the idea that, all right, Stephen's the first deacon, okay. Okay. Um, And sometimes that's sort of the takeaway here is that, all right, this is how to set up deacons and this is just the story of of the first deacons. Um, But it's also a story of just uh, uh, developing this idea that that you're going to set people to do different jobs, right? You're going to set people to um, oversee things when other people are focusing on the word, that kind of thing. Um, And I think also interesting enough, um, I haven't done a whole lot of study on this, but if you look at the names here, Stephen through all these other guys, um, it's interesting that all the names are Greek, um, so we might be able to even sort of infer that these, these people themselves might be Hellenist, Hellenistic Jews who are sent to serve the Hellenists, which I think is interesting. Um, but anyway, uh, so the early church, it delegates a special ministry unit. Uh, it specifically addresses the problems within the city, these problems within the city, And I think we can infer here that the Hellenists aren't the only people group who are facing some amount of prejudice or ill treatment in the city, right? If we have all these peoples intermixing, um, there's probably more than just one problem. Um, And we could also probably infer that the other six members of this team, um, they went out, they did great things, they influenced people, they showed people what it means to be Jesus and lived as the kingdom, Um, but we're not going to hear their stories, right? the bible kind of likes to do this thing where it sets up these introductions it shows us um, these patterns of things and it sort of focuses down um, and we're going to see it's going to focus all the way down to just Stephen's story but i think Stephen's story leads us um, to see a bigger picture there's Stephen wasn't the only one who's doing these things um, but he's sort of a representation of a wider sort of movement that was going on in the city um, so next slide ben All right, so we make it to verse 7 then. So then the word of God spread, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. And a great many of the priests were obedient to the faith. And Stephen, full of faith and power, did great wonders and signs among the people. And then there arose uh, from what is called the synagogue of the freemen uh, That's Cyrenians, Alexandrians, and those from Cilicia and Asia disputing with Stephen. So as a result of what we saw in the previous verses, right, we set up this delegation out to the city, and as a result, the word spreads throughout the city. Uh, and specifically, to, to no surprise to us, the priesthood, right, the people who are in charge of, of the distribution, as we saw earlier. Um, so the, uh, yes. So now the, fo- the story focuses in on Stephen, right? Um, we get sort of the wider picture. Many people are going out with do these things. But we're going to focus on Stephen as a representation of the, all of this, these things going on. Um, and he's set up for us this mission and the specific people he is ministering to, right? It's, he's going to the leadership, <laughs> it seems like. Because the next thing we see named is a, a leadership group. He goes to a synagogue, right? Um, And here then we have our second named subculture group, I think, in the chapter, right? First we had the Hellenists, and now we have this Synagogue of the Freemen. So now the Synagogue of the Freemen was made up, as we can see in the parentheses, uh, Jews from a diverse set of places. They're from all all over the world. Um, And scholars say that most likely these people would have been uh, taken, sold, or born into slavery of some kind in all these far different reaching places of the world. Uh, and if you go to the next slide, Ben. I've uh, gone to the trouble of mapping out these places for us, and, and maybe someone else can, can figure out if there's any meaning to this, but um, the writer has, has listed them in uh, counterclockwise order, starting with uh, Cilicia there over in Libya, coming up to Alexandria and going around uh, up into, um, when it says Asia in the Bible... What it, what it usually means is, is that region of Turkey over there with uh, Ephesus, which I've marked out there being the capital. Um, so I think that's interesting too, that we're going to get this interesting picture of this section of the Mediterranean, these people of uh, what, I think people of Israel would have thought of as like, this is the wider world, right? Um, but anyway... Um, at some point, these people, these freed men, obviously, they're not slaves anymore. They were able to gain their freedom. And, of course, these people are from way out. They, this is a long, these are a, places are a long way from, from Israel. But now they're in Jerusalem. So, obviously, their first impulse after they've been freed is to go to their homeland, to return to their holy city. And why wouldn't you? If the place you lived in represented this oppression and pain and the dehumanization that comes with slavery... Why on earth would you ever want to stay in Alexandria, say, if that's what it meant to you? Uh, And especially if you knew the stories of your people, Uh, those stories that told of God's hand, bringing them out of a land of slavery and into the promised land, of course you'd want to get back to that promised land that you've been told about and you knew in your heart. Um, You'd try to get there as fast as you could, wouldn't you? Um, And sure enough, there's enough of these people with similar stories from all over the world uh, that they start to collect together in one place in Jerusalem and they worship together in the same place. Um, even though they're from different parts of the world, they're, they're Greek, they're Roman, they have a shared identity and a similar worldview from being having lived as slaves at one point in their life. Um, and to follow that, they, then they also share a kind of a similar pain, don't they? <laughs> Next slide, Ben. So we, we move on to... Uh, the, the rest of the chapter here, uh, and something interesting happens then. So he's disputing with these, these freedmen, uh, and these freedmen were not able to resist the wisdom and the spirit by which Stephen spoke. So they secretly induced men to say, we have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes, and they came upon Stephen, seized him, and brought him to a council. They also set up false witnesses who said, This man does not cease to speak blasphemous words against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy the place and change the customs which Moses delivered to us. And all who sat in the council looked steadfastly at him and saw his face as the face of an angel. So in that, obviously, we can sort of see um, uh, who, who are we reminded of, right? Reminded of Jesus, right? There's some... Um, reflections going on there between what's happening to Stephen and what happened to Jesus, right? Um, but I really had to sit with this for a moment, I think, because didn't, this didn't make sense to me. Um, it seemed like these people, these freed men, the synagogue of the freemen, the, these are people who knew the hardship of being on the lowest order of the world system. They knew the sweet taste of being a free man. Um, it seems like they'd be first in line when this Stephen comes around preaching a message about the kingdom of God, where the weak and forgotten are embraced as one family. Something must have resonated with them, though, because they can't argue with his wisdom. They see that he, what he's saying is good and true. So where's the disconnect? Why, why so much bitter hate? What could drive them to create this false witness and try to send Stephen off to his doom? Uh, it has to stir up something really deep and really ugly in you to, to, be, to do these kinds of things, doesn't it? Um, So, after some reflection, I I think it it really clicks um, when you think about um, the introduction of the Hellenists earlier as the sort of catalyst that moves the story forward. And I think it's a very intentional inclusion to talk about them. Um, Just think about how very different these two subcultures are. Um, Here you are, if you're in The Freedmen, your whole identity, your spiritual community is defined by your disdain and probably hatred for oppressive cultures that enslaved and belittled you your whole life. The cultures you worked and you slaved and you sweated and you bled to leave and you're never going to return back there, right? (laughs) And you, living in the holy city, uh, to you, living in that holy city, living in Jerusalem, is the very heart of what it means to be this Jewish person. It must be very important to you. (laughs) Um, And here's your neighbor. Here's the the Hellenist come along who not only just insults the very idea of being Jewish by succumbing to all the ways and the manners of those oppressive oppressive slaves and those oppressive cultures, Um, but they have the very audacity, the gall, the nerve to come back to your holy city, just like you did. Um, They come back to Jerusalem, the Jerusalem that you could only dream of when you were bending under your master's whip. And here they come, they're waltzing in, they're flaunting their Greek culture, and they're thumbing their noses at your experiences and your pain. Their very existence just fills you with ire. So needless to say, you're probably kind of upset, uh, especially when here comes Stephen and he's telling you about their problems, how their widows aren't being served. How is it suddenly part of your responsibility to care and to love these other subgroups in your, in, in the, in your city? <laughs> And how could you? Um, those people, they're, 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 very, they're very epitome of the thing that you hate in the world. So how dare Stephen come around and poke into that pain? Just how dare he, <laughs> right? Um, doesn't he know that the only way you even know who you are, um, doesn't he know the, way, uh, the things that you've sacrificed in life, um, why should you care about um, those people who you see as part of the problem in the world? people who don't quickly uh, throw away all that culture. Uh, I think, then, when you think about it that way, this response makes a lot of sense. (laughs) It's it's a very human response, right? Um, And it makes sense why we're told about the freedmen and the Hellenists, I think. Um, Next slide, Ben. So after we get through all that, um, we come to chapter 7, and I won't read through it today, but he's being tried there for his false accusations. He's in front of the highest spiritual leaders of the land, which actually we should remember was part of Stephen's original mission, right? He was to go out and he was to confront and to speak to and to minister to these, the, the priesthood, right? That's what we see at the very beginning. And here he is in front of the priesthood, um, the, the very highest leadership. So he's, he's kind of actually at, he's where he wants to be, I think. And so he gives this long address in chapter 7. Um, And we won't read it today. You can read it on your own, I think. Um, But uh, what I will say, though, is that I believe this frame of mind that we establish in chapter six, um, it follows here in what Stephen has to say. Um, So in brief, Stephen gives what first appears, I think, uh, a short history of some of Israel's most famous Old Testament moments. And objectively, this is kind of an odd thing to do, right? Right. he, he doesn't answer the question, uh, right? Because at the beginning of seven, the, the high priest says, well, are the things that they're saying about you true? Uh, and then he launches into this history of Israel, which doesn't really make sense as an answer to the question. Um, and if it's just a history he wants to go over, over, over. if he just wants to, here's what happened in the past, if that's all he wants to tell them about, um, he's kind of preaching to the choir, isn't he? Um, these people that he's talking to, the, the spiritual leadership these people know these stories better than anyone else in the world. Um, more likely than not, pretty much every single man in this council, they could re- reproduce large portions, if not whole books of the Bible from memory. <laughs> so him telling this, these stories is kind of an odd thing to do, I think. So I believe what we're seeing here, if you read through it carefully, um, you're seeing the, wi- the message of wisdom that Stephen was bringing to the city that we're told about earlier in the chapter. The, the kind of thing that he was giving to the other synagogues and the spiritual leaders. Um, the kind of thing that put him at odds with the synagogue of freedom, or the, the synagogue of freedmen that caused him to be in this situation in the first place. Uh, what Stephen does here in his address is he takes sort of a unique angle, I would like to say. <laughs> it's a very unique angle um, to Israel's founding fathers. He speaks about Abraham and he speaks about Joseph and he speaks about Moses most prominently. And in each instance, he highlights their individual ties to foreign countries. (laughs) Uh, Even going as far as to call them foreigners living in a foreign land, um, uh, especially in relation to the promised land. If we think about Abraham, he calls Abraham a foreigner. He's some guy, he's a Chaldean, he says, who comes from some foreign land and invades the promised land, essentially. And he points out how each of the story involves violence between people. Um, brother against brother, Israelite against Israelite. It's really the same stuff we see replicated in all human history, the same stuff we're seeing replicated right here in front of Stephen. People are struggling to maintain power, to maintain control, to see the world realized in their image. It's a my way or the highway. Um, It's a might makes right kind of reality that Stephen is revealing through the history of Israel. This is is kind of, uh, you know, you're, you're, you're really pushing, <laughs> pushing the boundaries, right? These, these spiritual leaders, they, they, they hold these stories very highly. Um, and when you're putting it that way, I think you're, you're, you're asking for trouble. Um, but it's also a very honest reflection, isn't it? Next slide. All right. So this is how Stephen ends this long address, this history. Um, we start at verse 48. He says, However, the Most High that is God, does not dwell in temples made with hands. As the prophet says, heaven is my throne, the earth is my footstool. Hmm, sounds like God is dwelling in the world. What house will you build for me, says the Lord, or what is the place of my rest? Has my hand not made all these things? You stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears, You you always resist the Holy Spirit, As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who foretold the coming of the just one, that is, Jesus, of whom you now have become the betrayers and the murderers. Hmm. It's with this proclamation hanging in the air that they put him to death. They stone him. Uh, And it's at that very same moment we're also told, that the heavens open up before Stephen and he sees Jesus himself standing in his fullness, standing in his glory. For it's in that darkness, in that evil, when the poison of the world is striking the heel of man, that God is present and his peace reigns supreme. For God doesn't dwell in anything made by the hands of man, the temples, these places that Stephen's going to, right? Um, The places where these leaders are the most powerful, um, because he is the supreme dweller. He exists in everything. He has made his home in the very fabric of his creation, and he resides now in the hearts of those who call out for completion, for wholeness, and for deeper love. For those like Stephen, who are standing there honestly and seemingly weakly, but he is Probably the strongest person there, right? Because he is seeing the fullness of God. And all those men who know the stories better than everyone can't see it at all. They didn't kill Stephen just because their doctrines and their religious practices induced them to kill Christians as some general rule. (laughs) They killed Stephen because when he held out that mirror of truth, the mirror of God's mercy to their faces, they were forced to reckon with their own selfish ambitions and the secret hates that were hidden in their hearts. That if they were to truly live in that kingdom of God that he was preaching about, if they were to love and to live and to give in unity, if they saw their neighbor, (laughs) they saw that Hellenist over there as God sees them, then something fundamental in their nation nature would just have to shift. It would shake and perhaps crumble into dust and leave them entirely changed. Uh, And as our story shows, people can be induced to do the most inhuman things when their personal status quo is threatened, I think. <laughs> uh, I think Jonah, in, in, early, in the Old Testament, he expresses it best when he, he's angrily crying out to the Lord at the end of his story, and he says, I knew that you were gracious and merciful and slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness and one who relents from doing harm to men. So therefore, take my life, for it's better for me to die than to live. Next slide, Ben. So this is what I want to leave us today with. Uh, I heard a song in the last year on the radio uh, whose chorus goes like this. It says, I like that you're broken. You're broken like me. Maybe that makes me a fool. But I like that you're lonely. Lonely like me. Maybe I could be lonely with you. (laughs) Very poetic. Uh, We live in a world of increasing division, of miscommunication. It's got a lot of isolation and heartache. Um, The distance between peoples who should be united, even by maybe a religious creed or maybe patriotic duty or even just common human decency, uh, it seems to grow greater and greater by the day, doesn't it? Uh, Yet I believe the problem at its core is is no different than it was 2,000 years ago when men brought um, Stephen before the council and intended to kill him, right? People are broken. Their hearts and identities are in need of some mending. They're crying out to know and be known. (laughs) The great call of the kingdom of God, I think, is a grand invitation to the whole of humanity, not just to believe what we believe in, but to know... Who we know And perhaps further still, to share the same space with us, to dwell with us, perhaps. And when we do dwell with one another, um, we might not all look alike. We might not all talk alike, um, and we might not all think alike all the time. But the good news is is that we won't have to exist in that space alone, will we? We won't have to dwell just with one another. Um, Because we'll be sharing that space, that divine space, this divine space that we're living in, the kingdom of God that Jesus brought for us. We're going to be living with the owner. We are living, actually, with the owner of everything. The owner of the house is here. The one who touches the hearts of men and leaves them forever changed. The one who brings all creeds, all peoples, and all nations on their knees before him, the word says. And in that posture, on our knees before him, I think our differences and all our little arguments and our our petty little heated debates that we get in as humans in general, um, they'll have to seem like a vapor and a smoke in the wind, won't it, when we're all before him in that throne room? Um, Will we even remember it? (laughs) I don't know. I don't think so. I think we'll actually truly see one another in that day. Uh, And we'll be knit together as one family, won't we? Where each one of us will know that we belong, that we have meaning, and will never lack for love or purpose. And I think the good news is, though, is that when Jesus came, he said that the kingdom was coming, but what did he also say? He said that it's here now, isn't it? I think it's here in this room. (laughs) I can see it um, just by looking around, that there's, we know that in our heart, that if we, we really... Rest in him, we'll know each other, we'll live in that unity, we'll actually dwell. The picture of holy kingdom dwelling I think can exist right here in Ten Strike, Minnesota um, and perhaps grow out from there, can it? All right, so Jesus, we come before you today and we ask that your kingdom would come, even as it is already here in each of our hearts because you are here in each one of our hearts. And it's not just some ideal, it's not some utopia we're talking about. We're talking about the reality of the Spirit of God connecting people to people, connecting us to you, connecting our world all around the world, church to church, people to people, connecting to the lost, connecting to those who are broken and bringing them into the fold and letting them become part of the family. We know that that is a part of your mission. We know that it is a part of your heart. So we ask that we would just know it, that we would feel it, and that we would walk in it in confidence this week and through all our lives, Jesus, that we would know you and know those around us are a part of what your plan is in this world. In your name, amen. Very,
2: very timely and the, the answer to disunity wherever it is in a home in a church in a nation and all the levels in between there in a workplace it's, it's supernatural it's divine, it's God it's not legislated by law of man but it's the supernatural impartation of God I think, what is it, Ephesians 2.14 or 3.14 maybe He is our peace who has broken down the middle wall of partition that's Jesus that was between the Jew and the Gentile but it's between any wall that is there. He breaks the dividing wall. In the body of Christ, unity is so important. Uh, The last couple of weeks we've had teachers. Dan Woodward's a teacher. Peter Coffin is a teacher and it's different. You know, then like when I speak or when someone with a prophetic thrust speaks, or even evangelist. But it says in Ephesians four, verse eleven, and this is a new living translation. Now these are the gifts Christ gave to the church. The apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. Their responsibility is to equip God's people to do His work and build up the church, the body of Christ. This will continue until we all come into such unity in our faith and knowledge of God's Son that we will be mature in the Lord. You know, some of this... You know, like for me, I probably need to go back and listen to this again, you know, or watch it. You know, you can hear it, audio. John, he gets it on there for us to hear by just audio, or we can see it video. Um, Just go back to the archives, and and we can get that, and we can get that until we come to that unity of the knowledge of God's Son that we be mature in the Lord, measuring up to the full and complete standard of Christ. Then we will no longer be immature children. We won't be tossed and blown about by every wind of teaching. We will not be influenced when people try to trick us with lies so clever they sound like truth. And that can happen. (laughs) Well, we see that all around us all the time. Instead, we speak the truth. We speak the truth. Again, in our family, in our church, in our community, in our school, in our workplace, wherever we're with other people, we speak the truth in love. Growing in every way more and more like Christ who is the head of his body, the church. And he makes the whole body fit together. Together. Perfectly. As each part does its own work, special work. We're all different. Have a special place. And it helps the other parts grow. We help each other grow. You would never hear me bring a message like Peter did today. (laughs) You know, I mean, it's it's just not what God made me, but he made Peter that way. And each of you has stuff that nobody else has to give to the body of Christ. Tim Waller has stuff that he gives to the body of Christ that we see and we know. We've seen it through the years. It's an impartation, it's his part. We all have it, we all have that to impart. He makes the whole body fit together perfectly as each part does its special work it helps the other parts grow so that the whole body is healthy and growing and full of love hallelujah praise god just a few announcements before we go today here this coming wednesday we'll have more teaching on wednesday that's 10 o'clock we have our touch point we share different things about what's going on in our church life, and then also a teaching from the Word of God. Um, and then, let's see here. The youth group, TCC Youth, meets at 6 o'clock on Wednesday nights. And be praying about You might The, the youth leaders that are there now, they're praying about We need some more helpers and and such and you might just be approached. So you'd be praying about it to see would I be one that the Lord would want to help with the youth group. They're just in numbers now. There's more than the we need more help. In other words is what it is. More leaders. More helpers. Um, and you could contact Peter that's or Linnea, 368-2771, right? That's your number. Then Wednesday nights, Kairos Gathering. That's right here. Kairos means an opportune and decisive moment in time, time for prayer, worship, and so forth. That's right here in the church house as well for adults. more. And then also on Thursday nights, a Zoom Bible class with Pastor Dean. And you could talk to Pastor Dean about that. By the way, happy birthday a few days ago, Pastor Dean. Happy birthday to you. All right. Next Sunday is Palm Sunday. And we're going to see that triumphal entry. And then just a few days later, we saw it comes to the, well, the passion of our Jesus Christ. Uh, And we're going to have communion together as well. And then... The next Sunday is what we call Easter, but Resurrection Day. We're going to be having a breakfast. Dane Johnson and the men, if you could let Dane know that you're willing to help with that. It's going to be served from 8.30 to 9.30. We'll have our Easter service, Resurrection service. And then uh, there will be, after the live stream, an Easter music drama, He Is. We have 10 of our group that are doing some things. There again, it's a part of the body of Christ that are going to be sharing that uh, with us on Easter Sunday. He is. Forgiving, you can mail, if you're watching online, Box 67, 10 Strike, Minnesota to TCC. Um, Or go to the website. You can get it there, too. Uh, place to give. I want to mention a special Constitution class that Shirley is um, teaching. Talk to Shirley Walker about that. And then uh, food boxes. We have food boxes. What are we doing with the food box? I'm trying to remember now. Bob here? Yeah, what was that again with the food box? Okay, yeah. <clears throat> what a ministry this is, you know, the thing of the, the food boxes going forth.
3: Diana, could you come up too? Um, just want to put a plug in for this coming Saturday in Cass Lake. You know, in this church we talk about connecting to God, connecting to people, connecting to service. And this lady went out of her comfort zone to connect to service. And unity in the community is what I, I want to represent. You know, bringing the body together. So tell, tell me what happened.
4: Well, I crawled out of my comfort zone. And that might be the right, right um, description of it. But anyways... Mom had said one night that we needed as Christians to get uncomfortable to um, reach out to the lost. And there are so many lost out there. And it's not about taking food to people who need food. It's about taking prayer to people who need prayer. And everybody eats food. So it's a connection tool, basically. But um, I went there, and I was very shy and nervous. And Bob, I just, just get involved, and in, in if you're, you're kind of reluctant, get with somebody who isn't. You won't be reluctant very long. And um, so, anyways, I, I got the food, and I got 30 boxes. And um, I was quite surprised that Bob only took 20. <laughs> but anyways, <laughs> anyways, and, and as I was going home, I was... Um, Seeing all these people, it was like, well, I could talk to that one and I could talk to that one and still not doing it. And um, I was coming through Bemidji and I seen this guy on this bike and I pictured myself pulling in with a pickup in front of him and just cutting him off, but I didn't. And I said, Lord, I'm sorry, I missed it. He said, that's okay, you're working on it. You're a work in progress. And so anyway, then I went on and and, um, uh, I finally stuck my foot in the water and he parted the river. He did it. It's not... I myself can do nothing, but he does the work. If we just take him, he'll do the work. Just just take him. And um, anyway, so then once I stuck my foot in the water, then the floodgates opened, and it was easier. I just went from house to house, and... and um, my husband, he texts me, he says, are you coming home? And I said, well, yes, but I got all these boxes i have got to get rid of, and, and I'm here. And, and anyways, the people that wanted prayer, was, it was awesome. And there were some people who didn't want it, and they just said no. And I just said, well, bless you. Enjoy your food, you know. So, but anyway, I do encourage you to step out of your comfort zone, that, that God will just take him, and he'll do the work.
3: Amen. She really inspired me because the heart behind it is faith meeting food. And when you have a free box of food to be a bridge to your neighbor, and we're believing for, there's some churches coming together through Ruby's Pantry, believing for a hundred sponsors from the church. I know we can give our money to third world countries, and that's great. I, I encourage you to do that. But if you pay that 20 bucks and you take it to a neighbor, and then you have that excuse the next month to take it to that neighbor again or another neighbor. So it builds a ministry outside the church. And so I just seen the unity in community and one of the things that happens in Cass Lake is a prayer line. People are coming for food. They're not coming for prayer, but they get prayer. So if you want to witness something on Saturday of evangelism and you want to get your toe wet in evangelism, my boys, so proud of them. They were sweating big time, you know, putting stuff. But this stuff is fanning all over the Red Lake, White Earth, Leech Lake, all over, all over Natawash. I mean, it's splashing everywhere. But it's coming to an end. You know, this is the last one that we have that we know of. It could happen more in April, but it's not confirmed. So if you just want to bring your family out, it is a blast. You get to pray with people, and it's just a lot of fun
2: just talk to you then about it if they're going to do that sounds great speaking of food i see dave steinhorst there he and sue are going to be hosting our coffee time here now so we're going to go there and fellowship and have unity in the spirit we're going to dwell together in unity right that's what we do so god bless you all if you have any prayer needs please come forward and we'll pray with you here hallelujah